Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. I'm first excited to welcome Nobel Prize-nominated doctor, best-selling author, and emergency room physician, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest today. Wow, you know what? Hey, I'm doing great, Neil. And it's always great to, to be here with the interviews because uh, I think we have a renaissance, man, today. Very motivational. I really think this is what America needs to hear. So I'm very excited. All right, who's our guest, Chris? Well, you know what? We actually have a gentleman who is an inventor. We have an author. Uh, incidentally, a 10-year-plus NFL veteran, uh, a survivor. You know what? I'm very excited, very honest. Welcome to the show uh, Mr. Steve Wright. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, doctor. Pleasure to be here. All right, Chris, go ahead. Let's rock it and roll. Well, no problem. You know what? And so, you know, Steve, tell us a little bit about just about your upbringing. I mean, um, I think, uh, you were from Iowa. I believe, um, I'm not sure. Actually, you tell us, tell us kind of where you grew up and, um, how'd you end up in, uh, end up, uh, in uh, football. Okay. It's, uh, I'll try to give the, the somewhat short version, but I, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, mostly Minneapolis. My father was a salesman for a can, canning company for 30 years, and so we traveled around. We were moving about every two years, but I was like born in St. Louis and then Minnesota and Chicago and Connecticut and back to Minnesota a few more times before I graduated from high school. Played all the sports in high school growing up, just having fun with all my boys. And then I got a scholarship uh, offers from a few different Division II schools, ended up at the University of Northern Iowa. All my dad's relatives were from Iowa. And so they also had a domed stadium, which was about the biggest magnet that brought me down there in a full ride. Um, got down to Cedar Falls, Iowa. and played tight end and, and offensive tackle, and then started receiving some uh, notice and letters from NFL teams that just blew me away because I even had it in my, in my crosshairs. I was just enjoying playing the game. And then uh, Dallas was rose to the top. I signed as a free agent with them in uh, 1981, along with 120 other free agents. And through tenacity, awesome, awesome. hard work, and good luck, and mentoring and everything, I was one of three of 123 agents to make the team. Wow, that's well, unbelievable. Great. So let's talk about specifically that experience in co college when you talked about, you didn't talk about that last interview. Tell us more of that experience uh, of being, uh, your college experience, especially Dome Stadium and all that. Yeah, it was... Uh, Got down there to play offensive, uh, play play tight end. It was again, like I said, with all my relatives there, so it was a family reunion. I was very close with my dad's parents, um, which were a couple hours away, and they'd all come in and spend the weekend. Um, it's kind of considered a, a suitcase school. Everybody splits on the weekend, but we had this stadium, this uh, dome stadium that seated, I think, about sixteen thousand people, and that was packed. Just a, a, an amazing experience playing indoors, you know, winters and late falls in, in Iowa can be pretty ugly. Um, so the Dome Stadium was a real savior. I developed a lot of great friendships when I signed with the Dallas Cowboys. I had about at least probably 10 other buddies from college 
come down to Dallas. It was the hottest city on the planet at the time in the early 80s. And job offers were huge and big money was made. And um, so we took all my crazy college buddies and packed us all into Dallas and lost our minds down there for a few years. Wow, you know what? That's exciting. That's very, very exciting. Well, you know, let's, let's move uh, ahead. You know, he's kind of, you know, Steve's one of the few people that's played in the NFL. I mean, really, uh, for that length of time. I think the average plays about three years. But tell us a little bit about, he's an inventor, you know, and I know that uh, he invented something that was very interesting for cooling for the NFL and was used for other places uh, uh, across the world. Tell us about that, Steve. It was uh, 1990 after I'd played with the Raiders out here in Los Angeles for about four years. <clears throat> I was uh, right before preseason started in late July, early August. I was in Palm Springs uh, at a restaurant and there was a mist blowing around the restaurant, keeping the patrons cool. And after a couple of margaritas, I thought, this is this would be pretty nice on our sidelines and talked to the manager how to set this thing up. And <clears throat> came back and asked Art Shell, my head coach at the time, if we could do it and uh, got it put out there on the sidelines. And it just blew everybody away. Everybody just loved it. It was everything that I had predicted. It's uh, mid-August uh, in the Coliseum. It's 80 degrees, there's not a breath of air stirring and our sideline was cool and chilly and everybody was feeling great. And so then after the game, uh, it turned out there was a couple of guys that owned large stables at Hollywood Park, which is right here in Los Angeles, the horse track and got their card and went over and had my first business meeting, asked if I could do something on uh, in their uh, stables. And this was, I'm not an inventor here. I just found uh, a great tool and found different applications for it. And so I went over there in the off season and, and set up a bunch of the, the uh, stables. And then somebody else wanted some of this at their restaurants and hotels and kind of one thing turned into another. And then uh, about 94, when the team was getting ready to move to Oakland, I was going to be going into my actual 13th year of football. I sat out one year uh, with shoulder and then I played in the USFL. So I was physically and more mentally just getting tired of the game. And I had a lot of contacts there and a potential business if I focused on it. So I did the hardest thing I could imagine. And I said, I'm retiring. And once I said that it was, I felt the biggest, heaviest backpack come off and I was free not to, you know, get away from the macho thing, get away from all the guys in the locker room. I had a beautiful relationship with everybody, but I was, I was ready to move on to something else and incorporated my company called Cloudburst and got a bunch more sales, brought in a partner to manage the uh, financials. And I got out on the road and started hitting it, uh, uh, got into something like 1,500 different Home Depots and Lowe's and Targets and Costco and Walmarts. And um, that was the low end side of our business, the low pressure. The high pressure was the, the pumps and the misting fans. And we didn't do any advertising. It was just word of mouth. We had a website back in 94, you know, back in the early days of, of uh, the internet. 
And one thing led to another, it's just doors kept opening. And our motto was good news is we got the job. Bad news is we got the job, figure it out. And we had no idea a lot of times what we were doing, but we just charged headlong into it. Like the Olympics, the 96 summer Olympics. And I've, I've got a great story, I, you know, I could share with you on that, but I landed the Summer Olympics in uh, Hotlanta in 1996, and just it was a stellar performance by our team. We brought in my brother and a few other guys, um, so we just worked our tail off. We found out the Olympics were in Atlanta, but it was also in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, Miami, and uh, about six or seven other cities. It, it was it was a job, but really launched us. And I'm, I got them on aircraft carriers and wow. uh, working with Burlington Northern and really turned into an amazing business by just saying yes and figuring it out. We had no idea how we were going to do half these jobs, but just go. You know, you're, not, you're not going to have that opportunity. If the door opens, my whole thing in this book is charge. Exactly. And you never know where those opportunities are going to come by and when they happen. And when we feel the worst feeling sometimes in our careers, something else comes and we're like, why do we feel that way? Yeah. And and my, my thing has always been really kind of keeping my head out of it because you can think of a million reasons why I shouldn't try to go to Atlanta and, and try to win a contract. And we hadn't even cooled a little town you know, uh, fair. Right. And all of a sudden we're cooling off the, the largest sporting event in history. And that's Steve. We talked about that on the last time you were on my show. So that story was amazing, but that's treating people right now. Let's, let's talk, uh, Chris, I'll, you have another question in a second, but I wanted to talk about how you discovered this. How did you work with that restaurant when you figured that out? How did that work business-wise where you created this to make it a business? I'm not really quite sure of the, the question except for how like did you, I, I you saw, started seeing the idea and you improved the idea, what you saw in the restaurant. Yeah, well, it's just it was the same thing that I saw over at the restaurants in Palm Springs. It's actually a very simple system. It's water shooting through uh, metal pipe a little quarter inch, three quarter inch metal pipe with the nozzles on it <clears throat> that we could buy the parts anywhere, the pumps and the motors. And and it's just finding the applications for it. So we were doing it at kennels. Um, the, the applications were absolutely endless. And anybody that came to us would say yes and and get it done sooner or later. It's almost like a light show, right? There's no real patent, meaning like people do light shows and perform light shows in a way it's a different comparison, but that's what it's kind of like, right? You came up with this idea, then you figured out how you can make it larger and bigger and serve more people. Right. Yeah. And and be the first one out and, and go and go hard because we had a lot of copycats coming into the NFL. Um, big, big fan or big mist or something came into the NFL. And by the time we started pulling out of the NFL, these guys were going in. From my understanding, they had to pay to be on the sidelines. And then a lot of the restaurants and everything, it was just get in there and and get a, get the sales fast and get the jobs up. Because we we had, like I said, the, the competition was was close behind us. Yeah, no problem. You know, like you said, he's been opening doors all his life. I want to tell me about that door you opened for that 99-yard run by Tony Dorsell. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, that was in Minneapolis. I was 21 years old, a rookie, playing on all the special teams. So we're, we're receiving the ball, kickoff return in the third quarter, and we fumbled the ball on the half-yard line. And so I'm coming off the field, and my offensive line coach pushed me back and said, take the right guard position. Guy named uh, Scott Peterson couldn't get his shoe back on. So he's stumbling around, and he can't get it back on. And so I'm getting pushed in to the first Monday night game at the Metrodome in Minneapolis. I've got 40 tickets that I thought at the beginning of the game were the worst seats. Now they're, they're in the end zone, about three rows up. And that's where we started from the 90 for the 99 and a half yard run. So I'm standing out there and I'm looking over and there's Drew Pearson, who four years earlier, I was sitting in the stands before this Metro Dome was built. We were sitting outside in the snow and, you know, 20 degrees below zero and freezing. And Drew Pearson caught what is coined the Hail Mary to beat the Minnesota Vikings. And I'm at the game. I'm in 10th grade. And now fast forward four years, I'm standing in the huddle on Monday Night Football with Drew Pearson as my teammate. And we're bumping five. And, you know, uh, then I look over and Tony Dorsett's standing there. And I'm, I'm the youngest guy in the huddle. And my parents are 20 yards away, three rows up in the end zone. And all my buddies, my neighbors, I'm giving them the thumbs up without trying to let the camera see me. And and uh, Danny White called the play just to get a couple of yards for Tony Dorsett to run up the middle between myself and the center. And I ended up getting a great block. Um, <laughs> lucky or whatever, I don't know. But Dorsett's, all I, I was on the ground, I saw Dorsett's feet fly by me. I jumped up and he was clear and cleared through the line and running up the sideline for 99 and a half yards. And I was, so I was in for one play. When I, we finished, I ran down in the end zone. We're all jumping around. I came back out. Kurt Peterson got his shoe back on. I was in for one play that whole game offensive, offensive uh, play. Otherwise I was on all the special teams, but it was, it was one of the more remarkable things in my long career. But it was a story thing that you'll always tell that story. That's the exciting thing about it. Think about it. Your home, like all your friends and family are here. You're just supposed to play special teams, and you have one of the biggest plays in Dallas Cowboy history that you're a part of. You and know, through the, course, through the course of the year on Monday Night Football, they're always kind of showing old highlights from Bo Jackson or something. There's always the Tony Dorsett 99 and a half yard run that's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Did you put so anything was, in the Hall of Fame, or when you go to the Hall of Fame, you have to take a picture? <laughs> yeah, I, and it's, I've never been to the Hall of Fame. I've always kind of wanted to go, but just haven't made it there yet. It's you know, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Canton, but, it's in Canton. I know I've not gone, and I'm in Pittsburgh. I've never gone to the Hall of Fame in Canton or any of the games or anything. I don't know what I'm doing, right? <laughs> but go figure. What a, what an amazing story. Go ahead, Chris. Next question. I mean, that, it's certainly an amazing story. So now tell us a little bit about Survivor. How did you end up on Survivor? Without having to, he, we, as part one showed, he can't talk much about it, but you can at least say how you got the connect. Sure. Yes. Um, I go down once or twice a year to see my old teammate, Howie Long at Fox Studio. And Jimmy Johnson was on Survivor the year before. I didn't even know that. Well. Wow. He's got a guest there in the green room 
um, that is the head casting director, uh, thanking her for his time on Survivor. And I guess they were good friends and everything. And um, they, she asked if I want to try out. And I said, you know, I had never seen the show, but I just said yes. And next thing I know, I landed in Nicaragua. And 31 days later, I get voted off and I've already lost 33 pounds. And I get back to uh, Los Angeles and I haven't seen my parents or talked to them in over two months because they really, really kind of quarantine you and take all your, you, you can't be talking to your children or your wife or anything. Um, so I was getting ready to go see my folks and my front tooth was bugging me. So I went and saw my dentist, he took an x-ray and he came back and he goes, we're going to pull that right now. My front tooth, you're not going to pull my, you know, it's just a little sore. We're pulling it. He goes, you have more bacteria in there than I've ever seen. This kills people in third world countries because this was my toothbrush for a month. And so they pulled my front tooth. I went and saw my parents and I started the game at 250 pounds, which they were always used to seeing me at just a steady 250. I showed up at their house at 219 pounds with no front tooth. It's just like, what are you doing? I look like a crack addict or something. You have survivor fans recognize you ever and stuff like it, that? It's funny. Yeah. It, it almost recognized me more for survivor than, than my full year. I, I, I spent 30 days on the show in, in uh, Nicaragua on survivor. And I'm more recognized there than I am in, my 13 years in the NFL and, and the USFL. Where'd you play in the USFL? Who'd Pardon you play? Me? Who'd you play in the Invaders? I left the, I went with, uh, I, I got traded from the Dallas Cowboys to the Baltimore Colts and then went with them in the middle of the night to Indianapolis and then uh, tried to renegotiate with the Colts and they were one of the lower paying teams and the USFL was just had wheelbarrow full of money. And so I signed with them and ended up in Oakland. And then so my head coach, once the season ended, we were in the championship game. My head coach, Charlie Sumner, had been the defensive coordinator for the uh, Los Angeles Raiders for the previous 10 years. So he was invited back and he brought myself and a couple other guys. That's, that's, that's what ended up in L.A. That's cool. All right. Good, Chris. Another question. Wow, that's just incredible. You know what I mean? I told you, Renaissance man, and inventor, NFL star and athlete. Tell us about your book. I'd been thinking about a book for many years. I'd had a lot of little stories jotted down. And once I started thinking a little more serious about it during the pandemic, I just kind of dove into trying to learn more about writing a book. Um, with master classes and um, bird by bird, which is a great book on, on how to write. Um, so I just started jotting these stories down um, and pulling them together, weaving them together. Um, it was, uh, hadn't really come up with a theme or, or a title to it yet. It was, it was something that just kind of, I learned that just takes shape and all that will come to the surface. You got to write the book and the rest of it happens. But um, 
through the development of the book, I started really realizing the theme behind it. And it was always the between aggression and being a loving, fun, empathetic, compassionate person like my mentors, my grandfather and my father had always been for me watching these guys, just how they treated other people. And then I got around all the football players and, you know, you got to put on your macho hat and be a tough guy. And so it was just finding that, that even ground of the pendulum moving back and forth of, of what kind of person I'm going to be. And I've got to bring the aggression when it's needed and it's best for me at that time or be loving and compassionate, which is the real heart of who I am. Mm -hmm. And so as that developed, the theme developed and aggressively human uh, came to be. And you wrote this book as this is what you're doing in your retirement, right? You talked about this a little bit more off air with me in the green room last time. This is really what you're creating your legacy for, right? Yeah, and it really, really wasn't meant to be uh, a legacy. It kind of has turned into that. It was, uh, like I've always said, it's just, if I start on something, I'm not going to think it through too far ahead. If I would have thought writing a book, if I would have looked at the punch list of things that go into writing a book to get it through the process of an agent, of a, a publisher, and editing, and rewrites, and audibles, and and getting everything approved and getting it on a shelf, I would have never even thought about doing it. So it's just thinking this far in front and write something. And then it starts to develop. And then, you know, I, I did this with my wife as well. She really helped pull together my loose ends and and uh, just worked as a good partner to bounce something off of. She'd be really tough and edit it and I'd go rewrite. and. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was a beautiful process of, and it turned into a legacy project, um, that it's, it's, I, I couldn't be more proud of it. Um, the audible, I just finished listening to it's up on uh, Amazon as well, but I, I, it's, it's something that I, there's not one thing that I'm disappointed with, or I wish I could have done that over, not said it that way. It was, uh, the whole process was absolutely amazing. Um, and I, I just could not recommend that more for everybody. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful journey going back through your life and what made you who you are, the people that helped make you who you are, the mentors, the good mentors, the bad mentors. I really talk about the bad mentors a lot that people Ooh. would just bum you out. That just, you see how they treat other people. It's like, wow. You know, I'm 10 years old and I'm seeing how they're treating somebody. And it's like, man, that's that's just a turnoff. You know, to a 10-year-old, you don't think the 10-year-old's watching you, but they're paying it to kids. Kids pay attention. Uh, did you make sure they didn't come back at you? Because when I write my memoir, I'm going to have some people I'm going to be talking about in specific ways. A lot of them will be dead in wrestling, right? By that point, by the time I write it, they're going to be dead, but... You know, I have a lot of people I've run into in my life to get me to where I am today, where I'm not Steve Wright's level, but I'm getting there. That ultimately, when I do write my memoir, it's going to be a New York Times bestselling book. I've already, I'm manifesting that right now. Yeah. And it's going to, and it's going to really hone into a lot 
of the making of the media giant. But go ahead, Chris, with your next question. Uh, so, yeah, so basically, um, you know, he's had a pretty exciting life. I mean, a story you can't really, a <laughs> uh, story you just don't see a lot. Uh, any overriding principles you want to tell young people uh, that help guide you in the right direction? Yeah, you bet. That's a good question, Doc. Um, for sure, one is believe in yourself. I, I, I say it in a book that my very best friend has always been and will be me. Um, I love myself. Um, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to do anything to harm myself. Um, that's taken years to hone. No, you do some pretty kind of stupid things when you're a younger, you know, younger kid, but believe in yourself, um, when an opportunity presents itself and it's, my thing is it's a gut feeling, go with your gut. You know, we've developed that through evolution over a million years. That's telling you to, to run or dive in. And it's always served me to go with my gut. And if you're going to go, go hard. Um, give it everything you have. You will love it. You will love it the more you dive into it. But so, that, yeah, just the, the open door and just giving your best effort and, and believing in yourself. Kind of my three takeaways from from, from the book. That's a great point. And, you know, intuition is such an important thing. When you feel the first feel it, you got to go for it. You don't let that, that, uh, that other side saying, don't do it. The yeah, intuition I, is such a, you know. yeah, my, my thing is, you know, it's, there's, there's the heart, the gut, and then there's this, and this always gets you into trouble. You know, if you, you know, you, you're going to go out in the, with a girl or something like that. And you just start thinking of, all the different weird things, a girl or business or opportunities. I shouldn't do this. I don't know. I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how to run a business. Well, I didn't either. I was a football player and it's just one thing leads to another. And you're, and even the book, I, you know, there's a ton of rewrites. I would have, you know, Hey, Steve, write your, write your, write your memoir. No way. I, 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 I couldn't be forced into it. I had to let it happen when I was ready. And then even then, you know, there was just a ton of rewrites. But that's that's the crazy thing. And the good thing is Audible, because that's something where I'm going to really probably get a subscription to Audible, because that's only the time I have to read. And it's because I read things all day. Don't say, right. someone says, do you read? Yeah, I read every day, right? I, I'm an entrepreneur, multiple owns multiple businesses. I have to read, but getting a chance to read a book, Audible is the perfect way for CEOs and very busy people to listen and do it when they're working out, when they're specifically drafting an email, when they're doing certain things. Instead of all the junk that's out there, read Steve's book. Go ahead, Chris, and summarize Steve Wright. Oh, well, no problem. No problem. Well, there you have it. Like I said, a Renaissance man, a patent holder and author, uh, great athlete. Uh, he's had some great principles for our young people today to uh, help direct their lives. So, wow. Thanks for coming on the show, Steve. I was just so excited to have you on. My pleasure, doctor. Thank you for having me. All right. We just had a blast, Steve. And who knows how many more times you'll be on one of my shows I produce. But best place people can go is Amazon right now, but also other places as well for your book, right? Yeah, please uh, come to writeauthor.com. And I've got a ton of photos in there of uh, Bo Jackson and all my teammates and um, 
game game shots. Uh, got my blog that I've been posting every Sunday morning. Um, for there's probably 20 blogs in there. There's also hot links to Amazon. And then if anybody would like a, a signed, I hate to say the word autograph, but a signed copy with a little note in there, just uh, let me know at, at writeauthor.com and I'd love to get something out to you and we'll go back and forth and send, send you a book. Oh, there's so many people, Steve, when I'll be back. Bo Jackson, I'm a big mark of his, meaning like, as a kid, I love Bo Jackson. Bo knows. It's just like the most quintessential person. Like if you look at a celebrity athlete in the 80s, he's, Bo Jackson's the guy. Absolutely. I've got, no some great, I've got some great stories in there. He invited me down and went to a baseball game in Anaheim and um, got into the dugout and down into the clubhouse with him. And yeah, just fortunate to be blocking for all his long runs and He's just a great cat that uh, um, I feel super fortunate to have been a teammate of. All right. Appreciate it, Steve. Thanks again, Chris. All right. That was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. Guys, take care. Thank you. I'm sure, you know, if you're listening, you've had a few um, inflection points in your life, right? Where you just meet that crossroad and something tells you this is the direction or this is not the direction. And yeah, so one of my uncles is a doctor, you know, probably the best, one of the best orthopedic surgeons in Kansas City, Missouri. And, uh, you know, basically everyone was like, you be like that, that, that this is your destiny, doctor, surgeon, you know, figure it out. Uh, and every single member of my family, I have 25 first cousins and, you know, I had like 10 aunties and uncles, you know, and then cousins, their cousins, right? Everyone was like, yeah, Cheryl's going to be a doctor. That's what, that's what's going to happen. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Welcome, welcome to Women CEO in Reflection. I am Bridget L. Smith, and it is my honor to be your guest host this week. In my 20s, I worked in television news, hosted a popular talk show, and started my own first company. In my 30s, I transitioned into tech and landed at Google, and now I'm in the third act of life, where I am called a super angel, investing in venture capital firms, startups, private equity, and alternative assets. This week, I have an amazing lineup of guests just for you. They range from trailblazing in, uh, investors, private equity disruptors, venture capitalists, all the way to diverse female founders. Together, we will explore their journey, their pivotal moments, and how they focus on self-care along the way. My next guest is the one and the only Cheryl Conti. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you so much, Bridget. It's great to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Um, so I can't wait to give you, I'm going to read her bio, which is outstanding. But when we dig in, you're going to see what is so special about Cheryl. She is just a dynamo, a, a, just a bundle of, of energy, a bundle of information and facts and research and and just execution and get things done. So you're going to love, uh, love, love, love Cheryl. So I met Cheryl on September 7th. I actually had to go back in my calendar to see when did our paths cross? 
And it, our paths crossed on September 7th. And so when I met her, she was on a stage as always, um, just dropping gems about the industry uh, and the ecosystem of venture capital and the lack of funding for women, et cetera. Uh, but then when I did some digging, because that was the first time I'd ever met Cheryl, when I did some digging, um, I realized, wow, this woman is super powerful and I must, must have a, a real one-on-one -on -one conversation. So allow me please just to read her brief bio so I can introduce you to the Cheryl that I now know. Cheryl Conti is CEO at the Impact Seat Foundation, where she leads early stage portfolio companies to success, provides resources for underrepresented founders, and helps build a new investment paradigm. In addition to her role at the Impact Seat Foundation, Cheryl is the founder and chair of Do Big Things, a mission-based digital marketing agency. She was also the national board chair for Netroots National, the co-founder of Attentively and a new media ventures board member. Cheryl is launching the, the re-edition of her Amazon best-selling book, Mechanical Bull, How You Can Achieve start Startup Success. So with that, you know, she does a lot. Uh, and uh, her book, it's it's print on demand. So if you're interested, please go to Amazon or your wherever you buy books and, and purchase her book. But you're going to love it as well. I can't, I've been reading it online for the last day or two. And I am just completely fascinated with your life. I think I'm obsessed now, Cheryl. Uh, the feeling is mutual. You know, as soon as we saw each other at a uh, the Wolfcon uh, Roadshow, which is a Women of Color conference, all about, uh, you know, women of color investors like yourself, the amazing super angel in every way, super angel in all the ways, uh, but also uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, did you know, I think you already knew this, but your listeners might not know, that Black women are launching companies at the highest rate of any demographic in the United States including white men, and yet they are capitalized at statistically zero, which is insane. That math don't math. It is market irrational, right? That is not Adam Smith's invisible hand. Uh, so, you know, a lot of our work is, is really bringing people's attention to that, that there is a distortion in the market called isms, racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, what, you know, you, can, you name your ism. Uh, these market distorting factors are preventing all of us from having an even more prosperous nation and world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Plus one on everything you just said. Um, I could start there, but I think it would be uh, fascinating for everybody to like just do a quick rewind and say, how did you get to be this dynamo in this space where you are shaking up the world and turning things upside down so that all of those isms don't continue. So if we could go back for a minute, as I was reading your um, your book online, the first few pages, your storytelling is impeccable. And as I was reading about your early life and um, you how you replicated your father's office in preschool. So you were in preschool starting <laughs> your first company. You, you got to read her book, everybody. Um, walk us through your early life. Where were you? Where did you grow up? and kind of set the set the stage, paint a picture for us. Absolutely. Well, you know, I grew up in the D.C. area, so the Real Housewives of Potomac actually depicts my very specific subculture of the Black bourgeoisie of the Mid-Atlantic. Um, so, uh, you know, and there are some amazing things about that culture, including a dedication to service, right, to service the community. So both my parents were educators. My, my father was a professor at Howard University. 
Um, you know, my mom was, you know, a senior educator um, in BC public schools for many years. Uh, you know, my uh, aunt was, you know, one of the lead social workers, uh, you know, in Maryland. My another uncle was a mortician. You know, another one worked with parolees and their families. So, you know, you get the picture, right? It's a, it's a, it's a community that's that's really devoted to service. And so, I think I've carried that through in a different way you know, into a modern world. But yeah, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, my father had an office at home, um, you know, from the university uh, when he wasn't there and, you know, was literally wall to wall books. Literally like every surface was covered with books. And I was obsessed with his office. I would go in there and try to like work beside him or like steal his staplers and something. So when I went to, you know, uh, nursery school and preschool, 100%, I was like, let's organize we have, we, you know, we have, this is an office now. I'm pretty sure everyone was working for me. I'm not really sure. How it, it's my idea. Uh, yeah, no one actually trusted us with staplers, like real staplers for obvious reasons. Three-year-olds don't usually do wholesome things with staplers. But uh, yeah, you know, I think I was always fascinated by, you know, the idea of, of having a business. And I even had uh, my second, that was my first business. My second business was I had a boyfriend also, you know, we started in preschool, Stevie. And, uh, you know, Stevie and I used to kiss. You know, we would, we would, you know, stand quite far apart from each other and slowly lean in until we met, our lips met in the center. Other children found this behavior fascinating, you know, and be like, kiss, kiss. At some point I was like, I'm not a monkey. This ain't no zoo. If you want to see us kiss, you got to pay for it. So I started charging, you know, it was a sliding scale, 25 cents for big kids, you know, one to five cents, whatever little kids had, you know, I'd take it. Stevie was a true romantic and had felt some sort of way about selling our love, essentially. I kept him cooperative in the business through using the proceeds to buy ice cream and candy. <laughs> it's profitable. It's profitable. I, when I read this in the book, I was laughing so hard and I was like three years old, three years old. What was I doing at three years old? I, I wasn't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, that was five. That was age five. You got to start somewhere. And then, as yeah, you, you know, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, as you, as you like grew taller and a little wiser, like the, the, the entrepreneurship spirit never left you. And, uh, and so I was reading in the book, how, how your family had one plan for your life. And then you're like, uh, uh, I'm going to do this over here. Can you share with listeners what that looked like? I'm sure, you know, if you're listening, you've had a few inflection points in your life, right. Where you just meet that crossroad and something tells you this is the direction or this is not the direction. And yeah, so one of my uncles is a doctor, you know, probably the best, one of the best orthopedic surgeons in Kansas City, Missouri. And, uh, you know, basically everyone was like, you be like that, that, that this is your destiny, doctor, surgeon, you know, figure it out. Uh, and every single member of my family, I have 25 first cousins. And, you know, I had like 10 aunties and uncles, you know, and then cousins, their cousins, right? Everyone was like, yeah, Cheryl's going to be a doctor. That's what, that's what's going to happen. So, you know, when I went to college, you know, I, I went to Yale, you know, I, you know, dutifully uh, signed up for biology class, <laughs> biology 101. And I just remember leaving class one day 
something like I just like it's something my breath left my body I gripped the store the stairway and I was like this ain't it this is not what I'm meant to be I don't know what I'm meant to be and you know when I do talk especially to younger people like students you know college students you know graduate students I say look you know when I was in college the career for which I was preparing myself did not exist yet there was no major it wasn't a thing and I think that is even more true now for you aspiring CEOs that you know the business or the careers that you're going to create you know for yourself and other people don't exist yet and if you are fortunate and smart like me, you will be a part of a cohort of people who not only create your own jobs in a, in a changing world, but create really exciting careers for other people. Mm. Now, if we leap forward, because that's a moment, that's definitely a pivot. And only people who are honest with themselves, who don't feel the pressure of following what others desire for our lives. And you have to be brave to, to, to not do what other people want you to do when you're young and you're, you know, in your say early twenties or even like late teens, if you will. So just curious, let's move, let's jump forward because when I met you in September and you were on that platform and you were talking and you entered, I think you were either introduced or you mentioned that you had so you were the first black female to sell a company, your company, to a NASDAQ 1000 company? Um, can you just kind um, of talk any, us through? No, any, any NASDAQ company. Any, any NASDAQ any, company. As far as, we, as far as we can tell. As far as we can tell. Uh, certainly if someone else has done it, let me know. You know, I'll stop saying it out here on the streets. But until such time, I'm, I'm claiming credit. Uh, you know, someone's got to be first. Look, you know, I didn't, fortunately, when I launched my tech startup attentively, which was all about marketing automation, social listening, and influencer engagement, for causes and campaigns, uh, I did not know that uh, venture capital investment in Black women was statistically zero. I had no idea, which is good. Had I known that, that might have been discouraging. But instead, you know, what I saw, you know, around me were, you know, my peers who, looking back, were mostly white guys. But my friends, you know, many of them who were, you know, creating um, civic tech or, you know, tech for nonprofits or political tech you know, they were launching startups, they were, you know, seeing, you know, problems and creating solutions that were often based in software. And so, you know, my business partner and I at the time, you know, said, hey, you know, we had a, a digital agency, you know, and our clients, you know, were having trouble connecting to what I now call the new grassroots. So, you know, we just like built a, built some software. It became clear that we needed to spin that out, you know, for it to be successful, it needed to have, you know, its own team, its own investment. And I found it really difficult, you know, even though by that point, you know, I was well known, I had been on CNN, it, Agence France Press, okay, the BBC, you know, New York Times, like, you know, I, I was, I was, fit, you know, I'd had a, an award winning, very popular political blog. Um, you know, I was used to people taking my calls and, and responding to my emails. And, you know, what I found was that, yeah, I mean, it was like crawling on glass. And, you know, later, you know, I became the uh, a senior advisor at Astia, which is an OG uh, angel fund and investment fund that focuses on female founders. So they had a lot of these. And so they actually did, you know, crunch the numbers. They said, you know what? It takes us seven introductions to funders to get a white female founder funded. It takes us on average 50, five zero introductions to funders 
to get an equivalent, you know, apples to apples, uh, black woman funded. And even then she might not finish the round. You know, they uh, gave the example of one who had actually gotten 90, 90 investors hmm. to get up to $2 million. So that's insane, incredibly inefficient. It means that America is asking us to do, you know, basically 10 times the effort for less money, even though our businesses are at least as successful, if not more successful than other people, because, uh, you know, we're more capital efficient for one thing, you know, because we have to be. So, you know, my work has focused on uh, that, you know, the, the, the exit strategy, uh, we had the exit strategy in mind at the very beginning of the company, and I definitely recommend that, you know, to you CEOs, whether you are current or aspiring, think about what your exit strategy is. You are not likely to have this business for 20 years. Sometimes that happens if you're lucky. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're very, very lucky, more likely you will be acquired. So who's going to acquire you? How are you building your, you know, tech, your product or your service such that you are attractive to potential acquirers? Uh, how are you creating, uh, you know, technology, right? Using APIs that connect uh, to other potential acquirers. You know, that happened to us. Our acquirer was actually uh, BlackBod. We had been in their app marketplace. And one of the things they noticed was that, you know, a third of our clients and customers were also BlackBod. Customers. So they did the math and said, you know what, you know, our, our clients want this. Excellent. Excellent. So, and, and so they found you basically, you had an exit strategy, but you were aligned with uh, uh, an inquirer that was a natural fit is what it sounds like. Well, and that's true. You know, business is all about relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, as you, we talked about my businesses from, age three on all, you know, have been based on relationships, you know, with the people around me. And, you know, that has carried through to today, you know, and, and including, uh, you know, Blackbaud. Um, yeah, you know, we had, an, we had sought out relationships with leading CRMs in the space, knowing that if we were, you know, able, lucky and smart enough to get acquired, you know, they would be among the top, right, um, most likely foles to acquire us. So, you know, after, you know, watching us, talking to us for a number of years, you know, that's what happened. Same with uh, CrowdTangle. CrowdTangle uh, is um, software, also um, influencer tracking and measurement um, that was purchased by Facebook, uh, now Meta. Uh, we, I, I was uh, part of that transaction because we were uh, minority shareholders. We had built some of the early software that the platform was built on. And same thing, you know, they, you know, they had a very crowd tangle and Facebook had a really, you know, increasingly intense relationship. And at some point they were like, you know what, this, there's a, there's a hole in our strategy that is crowd tangle shaped. Mm -hmm. Come on. You know, I was going to say, you know, this feels like a masterclass um, that we could probably, you know, kind of, you know, take lots of different angles in, but I think the whole point that you're making is to think beyond where you start. You have to see the exit. You have to see the horizon. You have to know what that looks like and then build towards that. So I think that's an incredible um, arc that some initial founders or early stage startup founders don't normally have that muscle. When I ask them, what is your exit strategy? Sometimes, you know, they say, should I even be thinking about that now? And I'm like, yes, 
you know, absolutely. And then I help them to figure out, they say, where do I start, Bridget? So, so I think that's a whole masterclass all by itself, Cheryl. That is our next podcast. Yeah, that's for sure. That's another topic. <laughs> um, but let, let me ask you this question. So as, as you are, even right now in this moment, you are somewhere speaking on a stage as always, dropping gems, educating people about the disparities in funding uh, female founders, Black female founders, um, and all the isms that go with that. So how do you take care of you? Because mental health and self-care uh, can sometimes um, not be prioritized when you're on a mission, when you have the same, that, that deep passion that I hear when you talk, the passion that I feel when I see the disparities every single day. And sometimes, you know, I put myself last sometimes, and I'm just wondering how do you prioritize Cheryl to make sure Cheryl is taken care of? Well, yes, I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. You know, I remember actually going to, you know, a summit of, you know, black female executives where they, you know, they read us the riot act on the statistics of like, you know, if you're not careful by age 60, you will have a serious health issue because you have been trying to do all of the things and because so much is expected of you. So, you know, it's a real risk. And look, you know, I want to continue doing this work for a really long time. And, uh, you know, I'm a finite resource, right? Like human beings have created so much, right? We can, we can move our bodies faster than the fastest animal on earth. You know, we can go to depths, you know, that no animal has ever gone to. You know, we can light the dark skies of night. But, you know, we are infinite in terms of our spirits, but we are finite in terms of our bodies. And you cannot achieve the infinite if you don't care for the finite. And so I think that's my starting place of like, okay, what does this, what does this vessel, what does this, you know, what does my, my vehicle need? So yesterday I took a nap. I knew that I was coming to SOCAP, which is a, you know, one of the largest uh, conferences on conscious capitalism. I was like, I've got a busy few days, you know, right. I'm speaking tomorrow morning. I'm speaking uh, at um, an LG innovation uh, thing on Thursday. Yeah, I'm writing a book on AI, uh, you know, for nonprofits and causes. Uh, I am, uh, right, I'm writing all the time. I'm speaking, I'm running two different organizations as you plus I'm on, on a bunch of boards, you know, there's the risk that I could just fry up at some point. So I meditate almost every day, uh, whether it's a tiny meditation, like a mini meditation of like, all right, I've got two minutes between my next calls. I'm just going to collect myself. I'm just going to breathe for a minute. And you can do it on your watch. You know, your watch has a breathe app to help you meditate. Uh, but I also meditate in virtual reality. I have the, uh, Meta Quest. There's a great app called Trip. Uh, it basically forces using neuroscience. It forces your brain to meditate <laughs> using lots of little tricks uh, and sounds. It's amazing. I love it. Uh, and it's motivational. They have motivational, you know, little talks. I do yoga at least a couple times a week, and I try to take a walk, you know, at least a couple times a week. Uh, you know, and those things, you know, you might say, like, you know, you might be thinking to yourself as you're shifting your strategy, oh, it feels self-indulgent to take a nap. You know, it feels, you know, uh, like I'm wasting time to take this 20-minute or 30-minute walk. No, nah, you, you got it all wrong. Okay, I remember sitting 
at a, a gate waiting to get on a plane. And I had a, a laptop, my iPad, and my phone all going at the same time. And right in front of me, there was this ad that said, the way we're working isn't working. I'm like, oh, well, the divine intelligence is definitely trying to <laughs> give me a message. I mean, you know, that book, long story short, you know, it, it, you know, it really changed my life because it said, look, the power of sleep. I actually schedule, I, I put it sometimes, I have to put, like, actually put it in Google Calendar so that I get at least seven to seven and a half hours of sleep. Wow. If you're not doing that, if you're not doing that, if you're not getting enough sleep, you might as well take a teaspoon of arsenic a day. Okay. It, it, it is a thing that will shorten your period. And, you know, once you actually are getting enough sleep, you'll find that you can, you're actually more productive during the day. Your brain, you know, is rested enough that it can just process your processing speed, right? You have more energy to actually get stuff done. Similarly, you know, taking a walk or going to do some yoga, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. It's a way to actually relax, build your energy so that you have a little more energy going in. And by the way, while you're taking that walk, while you're doing yoga, while you're meditating, epiphanies happen. Your brain is doing that, you know, background processing of all of the things that's synthesizing, you know, so that you get that. No, this is what I'm going to do. So, you know, it's really, I think, reorienting you know, how you are structuring your day and your life such that you're caring. No one's, no one's going to care for your body and your mind more than you. Oh, mm -hmm. and by the way, naps. Dr. Sanjay Gupta came out with some article yesterday where he said he recommends that people nap because it increases brain volume. Now, mm. they don't know what that means. <laughs> but it's good. But like more brain seems better than less brain. <laughs> right is really where neuroscientists are coming down on that. So if you want to, right, you know, keep your brain healthy, you know, and maybe avoid Alzheimer's, right? Extend the period before you start to, you know, dementia out, right? Like you're you're finding, you're listening very carefully to your body and what it's trying to tell you, such that you can continue to do that good work. Mm -hmm. You know what, Cheryl, what I find when I um, pull myself away, and sometimes it is very difficult because I, I think sometimes I act like I'm superhuman, but I know I'm not. But I say, oh, I'm just going to answer a few more emails. I'm just going to check uh, social one more time. And then, of course, you're on there for an hour. Um, I'm just going to do this one task, you know, so I can shorten my to-do list for tomorrow. And then before you know it, it's dark. You've missed dinner. Um, for me, my husband is saying, you know, honey, come on, come on, come on, spend time with me, your husband, I'm here. Um, so I find that when I do break away and I have to force myself to break away, I'm, I'm working at it personally. So when I do break away and I breathe to your point about breathing, meditating, uh, you know, resting my mind, resting my body, I actually have the most innovative thoughts the most creative thoughts come to me when I'm at peace. If they don't come to me when I'm at my computer and I'm focused and I'm trying to do that thing, it comes to me when I when I step away. So I'm just curious, does that also, um, so for me, that's a part of my self-care is I already know that I'm not, go, I'm not being creative when I'm sitting here. My creativity comes when I walk away. So I'm just curious, is that also like maybe an ingredient to your self-care or how, how do you experience that? No, I think you're, you've got it quite right. You know, the, the creativity, the innovation, the enhanced productivity 
it happens because you're taking care of yourself, not despite it. So, you know, if your idea is like, oh, you know, I'm grinding, you know, I'm going to prove, you know, my worth by just like working until I drop. Nah, you got it all wrong. Okay. The, the, the people who are the most creative, productive, and innovative are taking care of their bodies. Look, I live in Silicon Valley, you know, and you've probably heard all the stories of, um, you know, people, you know, who, you know, tech executives who are really working hard to optimize their body, you know, and creating even companies that, you know, enhance their bodies and their minds, you know, in part because they know that when they take care of themselves, um, you know, they do better. Look, bottom line, if you do not find balance, balance will find you. So mm-hmm. I just try, you know, across a day and across a week to find that balance. I don't work, you know, I, I don't do a call or I don't work more than, you know, 90 to 120 minutes because your brain needs a break. If you just, you mm-hmm. know, take a break, you know, walk around, you know, sometimes I'll do dishes, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll, you know, mm-hmm. take a quick walk around the neighborhood, take out the trash, do some laundry, you know, just refresh myself. Right. I can come back you know, to, you know, whatever I'm doing so much more refreshed in that half an hour break. I can also get lunch. I can do a bio break. You know, Mm -hmm. these are the things that make you comfortable and, you know, allow your body to then actually, right. Sit through, you know, another 90 minute call. Yeah. Oh boy. I'm going to try that. It sounds everything I, every time people say, you know, here's what they do. Here's what you should try. I always say, oh, I'm going to try that. And then I may do it a day. And then I drop, it drops off of my radar because my, the, the, my um, habits are, are ingrained in me to work, 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 work. So I'm going to try the only working for 90 to hundred minutes at a, at a time. I'm going to try that, Cheryl. I'm going to, I'm going to hold me accountable. I think we all need accountability partners. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll circle yes, back. I will, I will text yes. you. You, ha- you are going to have to take a picture of your calendar. Cause look, like I said, I calendar this stuff out. Sometimes mm-hmm. I have literally put on my calendar a block for sleep yeah this is the time or a block for exercise right like you know if if you are the kind of person who like me lives by your google calendar your calendar can actually be an asset here in that like well you know here it is this is mm-hmm. the break mm-hmm. <laughs> in there so this is what i'm mm-hmm. doing right now well oh, i'm sorry for this yoga class this is yes four thirty to five thirty is yoga so yes. I'm already in there. The calendar is telling me to go. I'm going to go. I have, yeah. I have scheduled it. It is scheduled. Yeah. So, and, and people you know, like that, me. That for me has been the best, the best thing. Yeah. I was going to say people like me, I put it on my calendar and then I overlay it with, you know, because I, I, yeah, I, no. de- I depro, I'm giving you the truth. I deprioritize me. If someone says, oh, I'm only free at this time and I've already got something else planned for me. I say, well, okay, they're only free at this time. And so I put them over my thing and then my thing becomes secondary. And then I may not even do my thing. So I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to really try to prioritize this. This whole podcast experience this week is forcing me to rethink my own self-care. So your advice is so well taken. I hope that that everybody out there listening has taken really good notes because um, your journey to get to where you are has just been uh, revolutionary, groundbreaking, history making, all of that. I cannot wait till your book comes in the mail so I can just, you know, um, read it and, and and leisurely absorb all the goodness in it. And then th- all of the things you said, I wrote every single thing you said down. So I'm excited to try and put some of these things into my life and um, and to see the difference. 
Uh, because I think well, our, our goal should be to live as long as possible and, and be as healthy as possible and not have to have medical care because we could have done, we could have lived our lives differently had we made better choices. Well, and you'll enjoy life. I mean, if there's anything, you know, we have learned from you know the, the heart of COVID, it's that, you know, life is short. Okay. Tomorrow is not promised. Uh, 